Hello and welcome to the Developing Your Football World podcast. I'm Matt Ward again, another day, another Matt Ward, and my trusty co-host James McLoon is here with me again today. James, how are you doing, mate? And quick question before you even answer the first one. Have you seen the documentary Sunderland Till I Die? Uh, yes, I have seen it. I've seen both series. Enjoyed them very much. I'm looking forward to hopefully a third series of that. Um, and yeah, I'm good. Yeah, if that answers both questions. Hey, it does. Smashing answers that. And that's great because today, as you already know, we're joined by mindset specialist and author of Educating Football, who also featured in the documentary, which you've seen, Sunderland Till I Die. It's a huge privilege to have on our show today with us, Steve Salis. Steve, Welcome to the show, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure to have you. How are you doing and what you've been up to? Well, Matt, James, firstly, thank you for having me. It's very grateful, very grateful to be on this, this podcast. Um, so just, yeah, really, really delighted and looking forward to sharing and collaborating on our journey in the next sort of 30, 40 minutes or so. Um, what have I been up to? Well, we spoke off air, Matt, for about an hour and a half last week, didn't we, about what I've been up to. I've been covid hit. Um, I've been COVID hit and I believe I've not gone back into schools uh, for two days a week as a consultant seven years after I've left. So um, I've just had two days in a Lewisham secondary school in South London and I'm absolutely done in. So yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment. <laughs> seven years out of the game, a couple of days back, that, that, is, that just shows you to the average Joe, you know, how tough it is and, and what you've been doing uh, for, for the past few years, which is awesome. So talking about the past few years, Steve, can you just give us an overview for those of you who have been living under a rock and haven't seen the good work you've been doing around the industry? I think it's probably best to start just with from the start. Obviously, I call myself a failed footballer on Twitter, um, which is genuinely, I was at Brighton for eight years, uh, got released, went to uni. I was one of the few of my generation to have any A-levels. So I was a PE teacher in South London for 17 years and, and a vice principal. And then I had an opportunity to go and work for Millwall um, as one of the academy management team there and headed up player welfare and education. So that was in 2014 and I absolutely had an incredible time. Um, and yeah, spent four and a half seasons there, met, met some really, really great lifelong friends. And then I had an opportunity to work for the England under-15s, which was like, wow, how am I going to do this? And it was 50 days a year. And um, it was like, well, I can't do both. One, no, I want to go down that route. It was just, it was difficult contractually to be able to do both. So I woke up one day and decided to create Solutions Mindset. So I've, I've pretty much, I have no business acumen whatsoever. It's really important that the listeners know this. I'm just a guy called Steve trying to help people. But I think that I have three strands to the business. Business one is, is around leadership which was really driven from my master's degree in educational psychology and leadership. The second strand is teacher training, because that would make complete sense, having been in education for a long time. And the third strand was really athlete mentoring, which is what I did all of the work with, with Millwall from the 23s down to the under nines. And obviously a lot of people in the UK call me a sports psychologist. I'm not that, and I've actually never called myself that. I think that because I have coached and I've played. I do think um, I've, I've managed to add value to players' performance and non-performance because I've got lots of caveats to what elite performance looks like. And also a lot of my methodology is actually from teaching and learning. So we, we can discuss that later. But yeah, but that, that's probably the easiest synopsis. And a, and a very good one as well, Steve. And uh, from, being, from all the different experiences from your footballing background, at the time... 
What was your general feeling and how did you feel the kind of workings of the industry being within it at the time? How did you think it was going? Did, at the time, did you think there was any, any improvements being made, uh, needed to, to be made? Was it just going with the flow? What was your general feeling of it going through these stages? Yeah, do you know what? I'm playing golf on Friday with three of my old, my old sort of youth teammates. I haven't seen them in a long time. I always knew I was middle of the group, even at that level. Now, I remember playing against Frank Lampard and knowing that I can't get near him. I remember playing against Nigel Quasi and knowing I can't get near him. So I knew, I knew at like late teens that I wasn't nowhere near them, you know, like nowhere near. So that, that's sort of a wake-up call. Obviously, Brighton at that time were not, not a big club. We were, we were a little club, so we were always competing in the southeast counties against some really top players, which was a challenging league anyway. So I knew, I knew what good coaching looked like and what bad coaching felt like. And I say I didn't know what good co coaching looked like because I'd never seen it. I knew that um, youth development was almost prehistoric in, in the mid-90s. I knew that. So, and I had an agile mind at that. You know, I knew that I knew when a coach was picking on a player, which happened a lot as well. I knew that training on a hill, we used to train outside the Goldstone ground on a hill, yeah, doing six, six V6s on a slope. You know, with dog poo everywhere. So, like, you know, that, that was professional football in those days. That's, that's, that's what happened. So, yeah, I, I think, like, even, even at that age, I knew what bad coaching felt like because I didn't really feel very safe. I didn't feel, I didn't, I didn't really get taught anything, Matt and James. I didn't actually get taught anything. The only thing I got taught, this is true story, 4-4-2, I played out wide. The only thing I got taught, in possession, get on the back post for a tap-in, that's it. Steve, without, without going off topic just, just yet, but do you think if you was fortunate enough to have better coaching back then, you would have been a better player or you would have progressed as a player more? Oh, let's, let, let's look at this. I was never taught to receive the ball on my back foot to play forward once. Me neither. So I was just, I was just winging it. I was just winging, winging, being quite good as a kid. I just would, I was good at dribbling. I was quite flary. I was good forward facing, but they, like, I didn't get honestly. I didn't get taught anything. We're talking about the nineties here. You're either good and you're fixed in that context, or you're not good and you, everything, whether you made it or not, was just by fluke. I mean, some of the kids, I was a late developer growth-wise as well. I mean, I didn't grow till I was 17, 18. I was like, I was getting bullied, you know, in, in many games. And didn't have the toolbox, as I call it now, to be able to get myself through the London clubs that were traditionally a lot bigger, more, more physical than us. That, that was going to be uh, one of the next questions, but that, that's the perfect explanation. You're either good enough already back then, or you wasn't going to make it, just like you said. Because I, I was going to say, so the, the players who became top players, what, what did they do extra in your opinion? Did they just have the talent naturally? Did they work harder on their own? Or was they lucky enough to have a, a family member or a parent or a brother who was already in football, maybe giving them a few little, uh, little tips? Well, for my, for my youth team, there's only one of us made a proper career, which was a lad called Kerry Mayo, played 500 games for Brighton, right? So he was a lefty, and this is nothing against Kerry. Kerry's a top player, but I will say this. Is I've got lots of little football quirks for you. For every one left back, there's four right backs. All right, that's a fact. So I'm not being horrible here. Like, there is an element of timing to a professional footballer's career, 
Right place, right time. Who's above you? This is what I learned at Millwall. Who's above you in the, in the pathway? Who's below you? And are those positions specific at that time? And I'm, I have to say this bluntly without naming any names. Some professional footballers are lucky relative to who's above you, who's below you, and what position you play, whether they get a contract or not. Because they have to fill up the 23s. So being, having experienced that environment when you was younger, when you was playing, being brought up in that environment and now working through football and now you've kind of stepped not completely outside these circles, but you stepped away from working directly with a club like you was at Millmore, for example. What, what are you thinking now? What are you seeing? And what, what are you, your genuine thoughts about the direction football has gone since them days and the direction it's perhaps going? So, such a good question. And I'm, I'm excited to answer this. When I, when I left the industry in 1995-96, I never thought I'd ever go back into professional football. I never thought I'd have the opportunity to. And obviously teachers wouldn't have been in pro football 15 years ago. You know, they weren't really in the game because you either had to be a pro or, or you weren't involved. Um, and I don't say that literally. It's not always the case. But a lot of the time at the top level, you weren't allowed to um, be involved in the game. So I, when I went back into, into professional football, you know, and even, even the work that I do with the Scottish FA, I lead on all their pro licence and A licence stuff, I've got two slides of all the gaps from school and education compared to what I saw in elite sport and elite football. And um, it wasn't, again, it's not a derogatory sort of message, but teaching is miles ahead of football, like miles ahead in terms of teaching and learning. I can't explain it and I'm not going to apologise for it. Now, I'm speaking at the Premier League conference on webinar again twice this year, and I'm just going to keep repeating the same messages. Coaches want to do well in the UK. I've never met a coach, Matt and, and James, that don't, don't want to do well. They just don't know how to do well. They're not actually clear on what teaching and learning looks like. They're not clear on what great questions look like. They're not clear on things like think, pair, share, square with a back four unit. They're not clear on things like thinking time. Like giving players thinking time. All of this top-end teaching and learning pedagogy, which honestly, not in a rude way, gents, I rarely see in a football changing room. So, that, yeah, that would be probably the easiest example of the, of the gaps between education and pro football. However, what I will give credit is, I said this on a tweet yesterday, for me, the six- to nine-year-old specialist coaches now that we have in England, we're now about 12 to 13 years into that, people don't realise, maybe a bit longer. It's not a coincidence that England is now producing world-class technicians. Right, that's not a fluke. Let me give you another teaching metaphor. If you gave me, as a, I have a degree in PE, secondary, if you gave me six to nine-year-olds, I wouldn't have a clue how to teach or coach them. That's why we have primary specialists. So my metaphor is the six to nine-year-old coaches are primary specialists. And without those specialists, it's like learning maths at six to nine. You've got to have someone specific teaching them the detail around what they need to do to get better. And, I, and as an example, I wouldn't be that man. You know, I wouldn't be that man. And I think that that's the most significant change now in, in youth football is we've got specialists for age groups. I have to mention, you know, people like Anthony Gale, Dan Molina, with, with 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds at Mill, they are like the best people that you want around these kids. Their detail in the four corners is incredible. So, yeah, I do, I do think that, that that's accelerated the process. Well, so much detail, Steve. And, you know, I think you've, you've probably hit the nail on the head. It's about getting, 
good football people, good people with football knowledge and teaching them the skills of how to better influence our young footballers or our footballers. That's like the, the key element. Would, would you agree? Well, I, I, I'll give you some sort of posh stuff. The learning to learn. I was the, I was a, I mean, I'm proud of this. I'm the first person to bring in meta learning into pro football. And it was a gamble, by the way. So I just finished my master's degree. I did my final um, dissertation on, on uh, girls under achievement. Right. But anyway, it wasn't about that. It was about me creating methodology and my own, my own sort of narrative for how children learn. So let me apply this for the listeners. Instead of learning about history, it's giving the kids a toolbox to how we learn about history. Instead of talking about geography, it's how we learn in geography and making the learning to learn process very niche and very specific to the needs and the requirements of the curriculum. So almost meaning that the kids have a different toolbox for every subject linking to what the exam does at the end. So quite detailed. So I, I still think that when I see questioning, questioning in, in a changing room, that's probably the biggest standout of poor teaching and learning that I see a lot. And in fairness to the Millwall guys, James and Matt, in fairness to them, they were desperate for my experiences. And they were so open-minded about, Salis, what do we do here? What would you do here? And again, I'm, you know, I don't know everything. I have a saying, everybody knows more than somebody. So all of these little sayings do add value because they do make people think differently about zooming out and, and maybe seeing what's outside of your little lens and how you see the world. And then the other fo follow-up to that, Steve, would be you said that when you were playing and when you were in the academy at Brighton, you knew how bad coaching felt. You knew what it looked like. When was the, and we might get onto this, so you know, stop me if you want, Matt. When was the yeah. first time you felt like you saw or experienced good coaching honestly I can't as a player hardly ever like I mean I played there was a there was an ex-Brian player called Glenn Geard that managed in non-league in Sussex and at the time I was playing for Romford in the Ryman League and I dual registered and played with all my mates for a team called Ringer in the Sussex County League right Glenn Geard is well known in Sussex He's the first person to teach me anything technically. And I'm just going to explain what it was really quickly so the listeners understand. I was a wide player, so I was beating players, you know, trying to trying to 1v1 outwit them, right? And he kept saying to me, why are you getting the ball so close to the fullback? And I'm like, what do you actually mean? And he said, well, every time you get so close to the fullback, he can tow it away. He can just nudge the ball away. And I'm like, he just said, just beat him wider and just go outside him further so he can't get access to the ball. And I'm like... Wow, like that's the first thing, that's, you know. So it's the first thing someone's ever taught me. Just go wider and, and carry the ball up the pitch. Like that is, you know, I still remember it to this day and I was 24. That's like a light bulb moment when you went, wow, okay, this is what coaching should look like to yeah. our youth players. And you went, okay, yeah, this, yeah. Like, this is yeah. everything new. And it took what, 10, 10 years for you to get and on? The probably rest. Longer. And the rest, oh. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, probably 20. And yeah, that, yeah. So just, just so we're clear, so the listeners are clear, I'm a wide man. I'm in the middle third. The managers ask me to carry the ball up the pitch and then I, I lose the ball because of a poor technical decision. And then they're, they're back on the attack. And the manager's saying, look, take the ball away from the defender, carry it because you're quick enough to get away from him and just get up, get us up the pitch. And he wasn't referring to more, more technical detail when we went in the box where you've got to take a little bit more risk. So, yeah, just things like that. I was like, wow, that's, that's golden. But then, then as a, as a non-player, where did I see great coaching? 
probably at Cholton Community Scheme, actually, James. When we were students, the campus was right next to Cholton's training ground. So Cholton's community scheme, and Jason Morgan will love this story. He's now an MBE and still runs the, the community scheme there, right? He just basically, he, he lucked out, and he won't like me saying this. You know, they're, they're the biggest community scheme pretty much in the UK now. But he won't like me saying this. They lucked out. They lucked out. They had 150 PE teachers training in literally the next field. And we were all skint. We all had no money. So we were like, Jason, like, give us some work in primary schools, balls, bibs, cones. And we would just all be walking around South London in our, you know, in our teams, <laughs> all working in the community sport. So when, I, when you say we're more great coaches, you know, I work with loads of guys that are all doing teaching degrees and they were coaching. So every summer holiday, I'm banging out six weeks you know, of, of coaching and you're just seeing like, and every week you work with a different set of coaches. So yeah, James, loads of good people that are now either, yeah. either in coaching. Even Jamie Day was there. So you had Jamie on last week, but Jamie Day would do it. Um, yeah, and yeah, just hundreds and hundreds of great coaches in, in all different forms, but all at the lower level of the game. I think it all ties into your, your, you've just gone there. The first time you saw good coaching was when you've got teachers who know something about football, trainee teachers, providing it just, it all links in, doesn't it? It all fits. So, yeah. interesting. And at that stage, James, it's important that a lot of the teachers that are then qualified were still going back to coaching the summer holidays for extra cash. So it yeah, wasn't necessarily absolutely. my peers, it was the people four, five, six generations above me that I'm like, oh, who are you? And they're like, Avery Hill, I'm Granny Junie, and then Granny Junie, and then you just meet all these people that, you know, they're better than you, and then you're just watching them, and then you're just stealing all their knowledge. <laughs> recycling, recycling. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm sure, as you both have uh, also, I, I've met a few coaches with different opinions regarding different education or further education, not football qualifications. So some say, no, I've got my licenses. That's all I need. Don't need to do anything else. Others love learning, but doing uh, degrees, master's degrees, anything they can get their hands on. Steve, in your opinion, would it be beneficial for coaches who maybe, look, not everyone's a great learner, motivated or naturally, but in your opinion, would it be beneficial for coaches to actually go and study a degree or a master's degree? And not necessarily in football coaching, but a topic based around the coaching or learning of football or leadership or people management. Uh, listen, it, again, you challenged me on that question. Firstly, let's just be strategic about this answer. If, if someone does a gap audit on themselves, and says, I have specific gaps in my toolbox that I need to add value to. And they are aware of it. And they think a course or a qualification is going to change their behavior. Then 100% like, you know, we call it lifelong learning, right? Yeah. Important that the listeners know that I'm not an actual academic at all. I failed my GCSEs, got crappy retakes, scraped some A-levels. And I fell in love with learning the first day of, of my university degree. So when the question was, are athletes born or made? Great athletes. And it massively hooked me into learning. The first time I went, wow, I love learning. The problem with schools is, is that we have got an exam factory culture in the UK, which I've just, again, tweeted about recently this week, is that we've got prehistoric curriculums which are putting children off education and learning forever. I say in my book, gents, that I'm, I'm not brainy. I genuinely am not, but I love learning more than anyone or woman, than any, anyone that I know. That's my skill. That's my super strength that I love. I love learning about people, about process, about pedagogy, all these things. So in, in fairness to this, I'm going to sidetrack on this question again. 
and this is really important. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with this. When I, was in, when I was in teaching and I'm walking down the corridor and I'm witnessing really, really, really bad teachers and then really, really great teachers that are life-changing. And I'm thinking to myself, reflecting for many years, how is it that these teachers have got exactly the same qualification, they get paid exactly the same amount of money, they call themselves teachers, and one's rubbish and one's unbelievable. How is that allowed? Why is that any different to doctors with medical degrees? I've walked into a doctor's surgery before and felt absolutely terrible, and I've walked out of a doctor's surgery before feeling a million dollars because the doctor made me feel great. Why would A-licensed coaches and pro-licensed coaches be any different? Therefore, in summary, intelligence should be defined by how we behave. End of story. If I've got a vice principal message on my door, if I don't teach my lessons well and I don't plan my lessons and I don't mark the books properly and I don't communicate with the parents effectively and I don't treat the kids well, the kids are just going to think I'm an arsehole anyway. They, like the kids in South London don't care. They don't care about my title. They do not care. So it makes you very, very aware of, and this is why self-awareness is my biggest driver, aware of why do we need qualifications if they're not going to change our behaviour? I can't make it any more simple than that. In other words, are, are some people in the habit of just taking courses just to put it on their LinkedIn to say that they passed their first aid in a workplace course? Or do they actually need a... a uh, a degree in geography when really they're not going to be using it to upskill the toolbox. So you're saying if it's going to make their behavior better and improve them, then all good, go for it. But if it's just for the sake of saying that you're doing something or you've got a degree, but really you're not going to put it into practice, it's not really practical. Yeah, yeah. well, well to apply it, there's loads of A-licensed coaches that are rubbish. Like terrible. And there's people with teaching degrees that are rubbish, like terrible. Like, I'm not joking. Some teachers shouldn't be in a classroom. But the schools, the schools haven't got the choice because no one wants to work in inner city London. People don't want to work there. The kids are too lively. So my point is, we don't often, you know, the head teachers don't often get the choice. So I think, yeah, it's, it's I hope it is what it is. I don't mean to sound, you know, people can sound a million dollars on LinkedIn. But you get them in front of a kid or you get them in front of a group of people and, and they can't communicate or speak or like, what are you doing? You're in the wrong job. So, yeah, it's not, I don't know, gents. What do you think? What are your thoughts? I, Matt, if I, I think one, something really important there that you said, before you choose the qualifications that you might want to take to improve yourself, I think it's being aware, the reflection, the awareness to know where your own gaps are. If you can't even get past that area, then you're in big trouble. So for example, it might be myself. I might think, okay, I want to improve on my communication skills. But if I, if I actually reflected, I know my communication skills are good. So what's the point in taking another course in communication? I need to find out where it is that I lack. And I think that's, that's everybody needs to do. So I, we do. And I think Matt, we speak to a lot of people uh, off air, on air, wherever it is. And they tell us about a lot of things that they might be doing. I think this specific there, where are my gaps? That's, that's essential. And if you can't be reflective, you can't be a reflective practitioner. You've got big problems from the start. So that would be the first thing that would say to people looking to improve, learn how to reflect, learn how to dig deep into what you do mm. to make yourself a better uh, facilitator or what is a coach facilitator teacher. James, James, absolutely. Now, you know, I'm being a bit pessimistic here, but this is reality for a lot of people. And unfortunately, 
plenty of coaches out there. That's all well and good, and, and we know that's what needs to be done. However, how many have got the humility to actually say, oh, yeah, you know what, I need this tuning in a little bit. I'm, not, I'm a bit weak in this area. I'm a, I'm a bit weak in that area. There's not, there are some who can do that, who can reflect, judge themselves, and choose where they're weak and then improve on it. But there are still others out there who can't do that. They can't self-critique and they can't develop themselves because they, they think that they can do everything. Is there any hope for these people? I think that's a massive, that's the limiting factor. That's like putting a, a speed limiter on, on, a, on a truck. You can, have a, you can have a super V6 in a, in a, in a fast car. But if you, if you can't, as, as the driver of that car, you can't figure out that your handbrake's stuck down or you haven't, you haven't changed the oil in it, then your V6 is completely useless. It is, for me, reflective practicing is, is the key element of being able to, to go forward. So it doesn't matter how clever or how intelligent, how many uh, qualifications you have, what experience you have, what knowledge you have, until you can reflect, until you can become effective at that, yeah. that's it. Well, You've got your handbrake on. Yeah, Steve, what's your experiences on, on that? I'm kind yeah. of looking at coaches' willingness to, to absorb information and, and critique or feedback, productive feedback, shall we say. I've got a couple of, I'll have a story, gents, don't I? But I've got a couple of stories here which are relevant to reflection. My first degree, 96 to 99, I'm 19 years old, and we, had to, we were told to do a reflective journal. Now, when you're 19 and you're spending much four days a week in the union bar and then four days a week in the gym you're not really that bothered about reflecting because you don't even know what it means you don't know how it feels you've got no experiences to reflect on and i just wish my uni did learning to learn how we learn to reflect but they didn't because this was the 90s education and everyone just ticked boxes and james is a hundred percent spot on around reflection now it's important for the you know the listeners that do want to have access to people there's a book called the reflective practitioner written by John Dewey and Donald Sean. And for my master's degree, the first assignment, which was 13 years, gents, after, yeah, 13 years after my, my degree. Well, so I've got my degree. I've now got 13 years applied experiences. And I'm a big believer in that as well. You've got to go and get experience before you tick all these boxes for qualifications. And my, and my, 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 my doctor, Dr. Bob Burstow, I literally mentioned him on every podcast. He loves it. He's a cool, cool guy. He gave me access to knowledge, gents. That I didn't even know existed in leadership. I have to say this. It was embarrassing that I'm like, how can I get to like 33-year-old vice principal and I don't know this stuff? It is, you know, the stuff that I wrote about in my book, metacognition, right? Metacognition changed my life. It made me a better brother, a better son, a better friend, a better leader. It made me have better soft skills. It made me, James, give myself a gap audit for three years of a master's degree. I'm reflecting myself and going, oh my God, there are so many gaps in my toolbox. And if I want to be the best of the best, I've got to address those quickly and develop them over time. And then once I've developed them, sustain them. A little bit like performance in sport. You know, we do a rag rating of a player, red, amber, green. The player's receiving the ball on the back foot. He does it for four games. And then we say, yeah, you're a green, you're good at it. And then like eight weeks later, they're still not doing it because they've started unlearning it again. So, yeah, the teaching and learning process around reflection is, I mean, reflection is, is power. It really is. Because we get self-awareness from that, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree entirely. Yeah. And, and looking at metacognition. Are we doing it enough as, as coaches, as coach educators? 
again, I have to say this bluntly. Coaches in football, all of them are nice people. Right? I mean, loads of good people in football. I'm very fortunate, you know, that I'm around some, some high-end people now. So I've got people asking my support. You know, Dave Livermore, who's uh, assistant manager at Cardiff, is my best friend in the game. Very lucky there. Worked with Dean Austin at Northampton with their first team. Obviously close with MK Dons and Russell Martin. So I'm around. But remember, the people that I choose to be around, it's almost law of attraction. I don't want to hang around football league managers that are wallies. Not in a rude way. I don't, I don't need to work with those people. I want to work with people that, that zoom out. I want to work with people that say, sports science, what do you think about this decision? I want to work with people that have a we, not me mentality, that genuinely lead with influence, without autocracy, without fear. So there's, there's, there's this element and, and this love that we still need to show around all of this process work but a lot of my work with corporate companies now is, is creating, a, creating alignment and frequency between how I see the world, Steve Salis, and then how Matt Ward sees the world and now how James McClune sees the world and just creating a sensible approach to creating greatness for human beings. Let me just apply this for you. The best head teacher I ever worked for, right, ever, was the most ethical and morally sound man I've ever met. And it's really important I share this story. We've got a permanent exclusion coming up. If, the kids, if this kid gets excluded from our school, we know statistically they've got 80% more chance of going to prison. On our head beer as educationists, the fine lines in education are, we've got to be inclusive and keep everyone happy, but at the same time, we've got to make sure that we still have standards. It's very, very challenging. On a permanent exclusion, we're about to literally sign the forms, which all the leadership team have to do. And he said, I can't do it, I can't do it. I need 24 hours thinking time. I mean, classy leadership. Just not emotionally rushing into decisions. Yeah, just... And then the next day he came back and he went, we've got to do more. Yeah. And he didn't exclude the boy. So that, that, that's what I've seen, yeah. That, that, that's mega. And that, that leads nicely on, on to the next kind of topic. Within the clubs, organisations... Uh, football academies are they doing enough to actually help players well not just players but help people uh, for example if they let go of the academy so just using that story you gave Steve that was a decision right if, if this happens if we sign the papers you know this kid could end up in, in prison most likely so if we put it into the, the football context of uh, let's say an academy player being released is that kind of then pushing them some, somewhere into a, a, another way of life, which possibly no one wants to be in? So they've been let go of the academy. Is the aftercare there? Are we basically signing that letter for them saying, we're going to let you go. We don't really know what you're going to do, but it's up to you. And then they end up on the, on the trash pile. Is there more what could be done uh, overall, do you think? And, and do, do some, obviously not all academies are the same across the world and in the country, but... Do they need 24 hours thinking time? A little bit more. Well, that's, that's one strategy that we've just shared. Um, I think metacognition, James, I know you said you want to write it down, look at it, has two meanings. Meaning number one is how do you know that you know something? And meaning number two is thinking about being a better thinker. I do this with elite athletes when they're saying making poor decisions on the pitch. So anyway, I'm not going to share all my boring pedagogy stuff now. Going back to Matt's question, 
when you work in the schools that I've worked in, I've got to appreciate that most people that I've met in football have nowhere near those experiences. That doesn't mean I'm better. I won't say this. My experiences are just different. I bring a different lens to development than the average person in, in professional football. So linking to the positive side about your, answer, your question, when you go to the Football League head of education meetings or, or the whole academy conferences in, in the UK, you meet some unbelievable people. Dale Brunton at Luton, cool guy, new school, sophisticated. Simon Ord at Derby, great people. Joe Francis at Cheltenham. All these guys are around these kids and I wouldn't put anyone better in front of these kids. Uh, they're just brilliant people. So operationally, there's people in football that are brilliant. The problem that I see is strategically the clubs haven't got experts on young people. They've got experts on football. Yeah? So what's the point I say in my book? What's the point of knowing about football if you don't know about educational psychology, sports psychology, strategy, operation, emotional intelligence, soft skills, KPIs, monitoring of KPIs, rag ratings, teaching and learning. Like, like you know, I'm not in the room, I'm not in the room, guys. Like, a 3v2 overload is not difficult. Like, it's not difficult to coach. It will never be difficult. The game's 11v11. It's always been like that way. So why are we talking about this all, all the time? Yes. The kids fail anyway. So, yeah, the strategically the game in the UK, I have to say this, I, said this, I say this all the time, it's miles away. Right, let me just apply this for you so people who are listening don't think I'm, like, I'm just saying it to, to cause effect. In a secondary school, I've got two and a half thousand children. I don't handpick any of those children. They come to me needing my help. Over five years, I've got to add value. Not me, all of my staff, all of the people that work. We, not me. No, cooks, the cleaners. Football clubs are the only place I've ever known where they handpick every child and they've only got 20. I've, only, I've got two and a half thousand. And then they say, yeah, you're good enough at 11. Yeah, you're good enough at 12. Yeah, you're good enough at 13. Yeah, you're good enough at 14. At 16, they go, sorry, lads. No, no, you're not good enough anymore. See you later. And I'm like, what? But that's like me going to the head teacher for five years on a forecast. Look at their, look at their flight path. Saying, yeah, they're on task. Yeah, they're on task. Yeah, they're on task. They're going to get C grades. They're going to get C grades. And then, no, sorry, Gaffer. No, they're rubbish now. <laughs> It's, it's exactly the same. I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So right. I don't think, yeah, I, I don't think I'm anarchic. I honestly, I said this to David Livermore on the phone. I just think I'm saying sensible things, but some people just can't handle that. That's all I think. I don't think I'm saying anything that's extreme. James. Yeah, sorry, I'm just thinking about what you said. When you said, does it make sense? How you've described it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense, if you know what I mean. So what you, as you say, what you're doing is you're hand, you handpicking 20 students. You've got so much time with them to be able to add value, as you say. And then you get to the end. And basically what the issue is, that is they are, they're still on path at 16. They're still improving at the same level as they have been. It hasn't been that they got to 15 and suddenly they've had a bad coach or a bad teacher and they've gone down like this. It's just that there's no, the funnel's got smaller. So as you get to 16, there's nowhere for them, nowhere there for them to go. That's, that's the issue. So what the question probably is, do we have a, what is our responsibility to these youth players who are going through all the academies? Is it at 11? You say, yeah, you're going to be in the program probably till you're 16 
if you improve to a certain level, you might have X amount of percentage chance of making it. Or, or another 11-year-old, you're fantastic now. You're 90% chance are going to make it. We, it's just about what do we... It's about how we dress it up, how we show it. Yeah. Because they're all, they, they want to be in the program for, for a start. But the unrealistic expectation is if you're in a football academy program, is that there's the percentage chance of making it is still very small. They wouldn't want to be outside the programs. They're still learning something. They're still developing. They're, they're enjoying their football skills. They're enjoying learning, hopefully. But what we say to them so that at 16 or at 18 when they're released and they don't make a professional contract is it's important. I believe I think it's important to say that yes, you should be in this program. Yes, it's good, but don't expect to get a professional contract, but still do keep coming as you're learning and you never know. Yeah. What all those points around holistic development are huge. I think loads of clubs talk about the word holistic, but no one actually, again, knows what it really means. Let me apply that for you. We've got kids travelling to training Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, not eating dinner, not doing their homework, and then clubs saying, oh, you're not performing at the weekend. Like, what are you talking about? They're a child. They're 12. Oh, they need to burn off. They need to rest. They need to grow. That's the first thing. The second thing, going back to let me apply this for you, there is clubs out there, James, still signing under 16 level, let's say... 10 of them at 16s because a lot of them play up now in the 18s and a lot of the 15s go into the 16s. You don't get big 16 groups. And James, they're releasing eight players out of 10, right? And then we've got the situation. This is why I'm talking about lack of strategy, lack of, lack of ownership, lack of leadership. We've then got a strategy where clubs are off the cuff, got trialists coming in on this two-week ad hoc basis when they've had these kids in a football school for eight years from eight. The coaches are meant to be getting them there. If they've been there eight years at school for football and they, not, they can't get a scholar, and then they're going, yeah, he just weren't good enough, was he? Like, what? <laughs> like, no. That's all I'm saying. No. Yeah, Look at yourself. Well, this, I hope it makes sense to everybody. I mean, when I tell that story at, at conferences... Everyone says that's the one that they stood out and went, you're right. You know, you're right. Yeah, I think it's just to, we, we've got to build a better responsibility on the football clubs to, to tell, not so make sure the kids, first of all, are doing their homework. They are getting their rest. They are playing their football and they are developing and they've got an opportunity because it is another great, should be another great learning environment. But don't pin all your hopes on becoming a professional football. Not saying don't pin it because everybody's got to have dreams. But realism and making sure the balance is right between other avenues of education, school education, other sports, other things. I just think balance needs to be better and a bit of honesty from, from football, the people who, who people are in charge. Um, yeah, balance. Balance is key, I think. Steve, Steve do, do most clubs have a specialist in this kind of uh, position now? Well, obviously, the ones who can afford the... the budget shall we say but something like you was uh, at Millwall uh, is that a common factor now in most of the Premier League and at least championship clubs or even beyond or are they still spending that on more important things such as uh, <laughs> I don't know a Christmas party or something yeah it's, it's interesting I think I'm not quoting myself here I think I was the only head of education in the country that had been a vice principal level 
I don't, I don't think there was many. I, I took, it's really important, I took a 40 to 50% pay cut to join Millwall. Now, I, I did that as a lifestyle change, you know? So that, that isn't, this, is, this story isn't about me, I know, but I just want to give people context. So therefore, a lot of head of education, they're really skilled, but maybe they haven't got the experiences of how to build strategy. So I pretty much picked up school improvement strategy. So I worked in four failing schools and picked it up and put it straight into the football club. Yeah, of course. There's loads of great department heads, head of recruitment, head of sports science, medicine, you know, head of coaching, all great people, and we work collectively to to create a best program that we did. But I think a lot of the heads of wealth. I mean, there's a head of welfare job from a former Premier League club came up this week, gents, and it's twenty-two thousand pound, right? And that's how serious the club's taking it. If you start as a teacher in NQT in inner London, you start on £27,000. So basically, they're getting someone with no, no experiences, no skills for that role. So again, respectfully, no. You know, that, that's, that's not every club, but generally, the, the money's embarrassing. Absolutely. From, from the salaries alone, because I, I see them come up and uh, you can see the kind of... Uh... <laughs> the pecking order of priority with the roles when in fact from you speaking now Steve from the from what you know and from what we know other people need especially from just listening to this pod alone you know it should be put up there as one of the main roles needed roles needing a specialist who has experience as a principal former principal and they should be remunerated as such as well because if, if yeah. you're something that's going to make the whole club better, again, I know not everyone thinks logically around football, but why isn't it being done? If it's going to add value to the players, to the whole club, not immediate, of course, nothing's immediate and you don't get it tomorrow, but it's going to add value. Why isn't it being done? And is it, is it going to change in the future? Well, we call it the four-corner model, right? I call it the three-corner triangle. Like... Like, firstly, people think psychology, Think people think I'm Paul McKenna, just going to magic up minds, not going to do that. And then people are scared of the word psychology. Like, they're just scared of the word. So, but under psychology, my point is, comes holistic care, really, doesn't it? Comes under that, you know, under that framework. Comes under welfare. It comes under safeguarding. It comes under Maslow's hierarchy of needs, how you feel about yourself in order to be successful. So, it's... It's... Um, it's overkill, tech, tech and physical. It's overkill. And, and why coaches still don't understand that them understanding a 3v2 overload on a counter-attack is not going to help them win the league. Like, it's not going to help them. When England lost against Iceland in 2016, I think it was, and everyone said they needed psychological support. This is welcome to my world. They didn't need psychological support. They needed intellectual support to be able to outwit their opponents, to be able to make decisions based on the environment they saw. That isn't psychological. That's intellectual. So again, people are misunderstanding the, the understanding of teaching and learning. Educational psychology, sports psychology, whatever we want to call it, the umbrella is the same. We need to give the players a toolbox to be better learners and have a better life. How, you know, it is simple. Steve, smashing. <laughs> absolutely smashing. No, fascinating. Uh, great. So, much, so many great insights. And just let's make sure we get a, a link out to, to Steve's book because from what, I've had an hour speaking to you, Steve, and 
you know, obviously what you're saying is, is, is spot on and it resonates with me. And I'm sure that every coach by reading your book, um, I mean, having a one hour conversation with you is going to benefit. So coaches listening in listeners, make sure we, we get Steve's book and we have a read because you're going to learn, you're going to learn so much. And yeah, fantastic, Steve. Thanks for that. And, you know, just underlying for the, for the football clubs who are listening in, we know they're all listening, uh, well-being of people and players and coaches and staff, you've got to pay more. You can't pay 22000 and get somebody with no experience and no knowledge and expect things to improve. Because one of the things that we've heard on this part and we hear from people who are intelligent and, and experienced in football is it's all about players. It's all about motivating players. It's all about getting the most out of players by knowing them. So if we're not going to spend money on looking after their, their well-being, on looking after them as people rather than just um, players on the field, you know, you're lost. You're wasting your money. So that's my message for all the football clubs listening. Um, absolutely, mate. And, and Steve, for those who are too lazy to click on the link, which we'll put on uh, underneath the pod, <laughs> can you just share with everyone who's listening how, how to find yeah. your educating football? Uh, yeah, two websites, educatingfootball.com, which is not rocket science, that one. And then Solutions Mindset is my business. Um, and I think, again, I think I'm going to end on this linking to what James said, really. Um, if we feel better, we do better. Probably the easiest, easiest way to end. Um, gents, honestly, like me and Matt have just hit it off an absolute treat on the phone, mate, haven't we? So thank you so much for your warmth. It means so much to me. James, it's a pleasure to meet you today. And, and as is football, the, the real reality of football is that we make new friends out of football. So I'm honestly genuinely grateful that you've asked me to be on this fantastic podcast. And, uh, you know, listen, the reality is you make friends out of it. So that, that's what it's about, isn't it? So well done, you two.